Hello and welcome to today's episode of Where Does Your Journey Stem From? hosted by myself, Dr. Karina Minardi. Today we are joined by an exceptional female scientist from Purdue University. Everyone, please welcome to the stage, Vanjika. Vanjika, how's it going? It's good. How are you doing? I am doing well today. Thanks again for being on and um, to give a, everyone a little bit of a background. Vanchika Gupta is currently a second year PhD student in Professor Dick's lab at the uh, Purdue University. She received her bachelor's of science in biochemistry from San Jose State in California, where she researched with Dr. Madeline Radlauer on the conversion of greenhouse gases to fuel via single chain polymeric nanoparticles. Post-graduation, she worked as an Amgen scholar with Dr. Netz Arroyo at Johns Hopkins University, investigating the use of osmium-based complexes for electrochemical aptamer-based sensors before starting her PhD at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in Jeffrey Dick's group in the fall of 2021. She then moved with uh, Professor Dick's lab to Purdue University in 2022, where she worked uh, to miniaturize electrochemical aptamer sensors for single cell analysis. In 2023, she became an NSF graduate research fellow and is now working towards finishing her dissertation work with Dr. Dick regarding real-time pharmacokinetic analysis in single cells. In addition to pursuing new science in the lab, she enjoys making artworks for her small business and teaching dancing in her free time. So let's all welcome to the stage, Vanjika again, and we're so excited to have you. Um, and I think the first question that we always tend to ask ourselves, um, or I tend to ask our guests, um, is very much, you know, tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background. Well, that is a complicated question, uh, especially as an immigrant. I feel like I get asked that often, like, where are you from? And my brain has a little bit of panic attack thinking about where exactly to say that. So I'll just go with my background first. Um, I was born in India, um, near Delhi, uh, in a town called Ghaziabad. And then we stayed there till I finished about fifth grade. And then I moved to California, where I did my the rest of my um, schooling and then um, college. And then after that, I moved to UNC. So I come very much from a background of a first generation STEM major and first generation PhD student. Um, my Everyone in my family is more on the CS or business line. So this is something new that I'm trying to pursue. We've had a couple of first generational um, guests on our store, uh, our show. And I think the powerful thing with them is that um, they were self-motivated and self-driven um, to, you know, uh, I think pursue STEM, um, even though you did say you have a family in CS, um, you know, so, so what drives you as a, as a person, um, you know, what sort of personal attributes do you think you have, which I think lend itself um, popularly to STEM? I think in general, I like to think of myself as a creative person. I know generally people associate creativity with art, but being in the STEM major, it's very important to be creative, right? So I've always had this drive to pursue new knowledge, to look at stuff in a different point of view. 
for example, I in my inorganic has been one of my favorite subjects so far, other than the work I actually do, because you get to really take molecules and look at them from different angles, approach them uh, with different uh, outlooks, I guess you could say, very, very creative outlooks. And research in general is like that. You have a question and people have come to the same question and gotten stuck there for, for years on end sometimes. And then you get to come in as a grad student or as a scientist in general and really think of it, take all your background and approach this problem in a creative way. So I think that's what makes me um, ge best geared towards science. Uh, but in general, in terms of why I'm doing this is I love science personally, and I got motivated in terms of doing science pretty early on. Uh, one of my first encounters with science, I have to say, was back in, I think we started learning basics of chemistry in fourth grade in India. Um, I remember coming home with my class schedule to my dad, and I was like, yeah, Papa, we have chemistry this year. And he took me to a shop, and we got all these Erlenmeyer flasks and graduation graduation cylinders and stuff. And then we did chemistry at home, um, because, just because he loves the subject. He never made, majored in it, but like, that's, that was my first spark. And after that, I think science has been more my thing. Um, that, and I guess one other motivating factor that I really have is I love science and I want to go further in it. But at the same time, I also know my cousins and my sister love science. It would be really, really nice for me to be able to lay a path for them, especially since there's no one uh, quite doing what we are doing in terms of hard sciences, like biology, chemistry in my family. Well, that's really powerful. Um, I don't think I was exposed to chemistry until high school. Um, but it's funny when you talk about chemistry, um, and the same could be with biology, you know, baking or cooking is a form of chemistry and take it a step forward, you know, um, if you even think about like bread preparation, obviously it yields or it uses yeast and yeast is, you know, bio. So it, it's kind of, it's, it's interesting because I think you do use all of those different facets in everyday life and you don't quite realize it. Um, I know we were talking right before this about what other things drive you to be a scientist um, or, you know, what other attributes are there outside of just being a scientist? And you were talking about creativity. Um, and so I want to ask you about that before I do that. Um, I want to comment uh, because I love when you talk about, you know, being a scientist, you can be creative. And I think it goes the flip side, too, is that when you're a scientist, you have to think creatively in order to tackle problems. And that in and of itself is actually a quality that you will uh, will be useful for you moving forward, even if you don't necessarily either stay in research, like as a professor or whatever, but if you, you know, extrapolate into other industries, when you have to tackle a problem, you have to tackle it with creatively, no matter where it is, whether it's a startup, whether it's a corporate, whether it's a, you know, a, a 150 year old company, um, there are still problems and how you, how you tackle them, um, I think are very, um, for scientists are, are, are very specific, um, which I love. Um, and, and the way they was the, that's a reason that I created STEM from too. Yeah, I think, 
people tend to think of creativity as a very limited word in terms of creativity is maybe for some people creating art, right? That's where their definition ends. But I think creativity in general is having the ability or the drive to take something doesn't have to be something in particular art related, it can be science, it can be engineering, and look at it, observe all its angles, and then try to make something new out of it or find a solution for a problem. That is all creativity, right? So there's, um, I think we tend to limit ourselves in terms of thinking that it's only one thing, whereas almost anything a person does uh, utilizes creativity. You go to a you know, you go to a store and you're trying to buy a bouquet for, you know, Valentine's Day is coming up for your significant other. And you're like, okay, there are these five different flowers. I could get this one or I could combine these three. That is also creativity. Same as if we're in the lab and all of a sudden something stops working and you have to come up with a solution. Maybe use a different reagent. That is also creativity. Precisely. No, I love that. Um, and I love really thinking of it and extrapolating it beyond the traditional research sense. Um, but to come uh, to uh, circle back to my initial question around, you know, what else uh, makes you, you? Um, you know, there's the science aspect. And yes, you do that every day for probably 12, 14 plus hours a day. Um, but there's other things that drive you as a person. Yeah, I think for me, I know there are some people whose life, their hobby, and their work is all science. And hats off to those people. I am unfortunately not one of them. I, Other than science, I think I love anything creative. I do art in my free time. So I do have a small business that I uh, opened up during um, COVID times. Mostly motivated by my, my mom saying, we have no more space in our house for your paintings. So either these old ones have to go and you can make new ones or you start selling them. So I was like, okay, fine. <laughs> Let's let me give my art to other people. Um, so I can continue my creative pursuit in terms of art as well. I dance in my free time right now. I'm teaching salsa on Tuesdays uh, on campus here. Um, I've been dancing just different types of dance since I was in first grade. So um, I think Science is great. It's my work. It's what I like to do. It's my passion. But at the same time, when I get home, I like to do something else as well to get my mind off of all those days when reactions aren't working and things just don't make sense. It all, at least for me, all I need is an hour of just dancing, plain and simple in my room, and I'm all recharged, ready to look back at the data. So. Well, I think that, um, is really powerful because it's, um, you know, and you've at least exhibited the self-reflection to say, you know, when I come out of the lab, when I come home, I want to do something that maybe isn't science, that is something else that is, feeds me and my soul, um, but is also a good refuge for, you know, keeping me mentally well and, um, I think that's really, for me, it was novels. It was books. I read voraciously, um, still do, but um, at, at grad school, I mean, I read some of the longest, hardest books out there um, because that is what drove me because I could just sit and just 
think in almost, um, almost a form of escapism, like of saying like, okay, now I'm in a different world. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the same thing for you to some extent of like, okay, I can use this time. Exactly. For me, if I'm dancing or even if I'm painting, so I am someone who thinks a lot, not in terms of just in terms of science, but in general. So being able to narrow my mind down into doing just one thing, maybe when I'm dancing, I think just about my moves, about if I'm teaching, about how I can teach a technique better um, to my students or with painting, how would this color look better with this color? compared to like some other com- combination. And I think a lot of people might not have hobbies, so many hobbies as I do, but I think I took to heart what my undergrad PI told me right before I left for grad school. And she said this really nice thing. She was like, you're going to have to work really hard in grad school just because that's what it demands. But what you should do is have one fun day or one fun activity, at least throughout the whole week which you can look forward to and you mold your whole schedule around that one good activity. That way you'll have something to look forward to at the end of the week. And during that activity, you only think about that activity. You think about nothing in your lab. And then that recharges you. That I think in the background, our minds, minds are still thinking about the problems in lab. But for, for that moment, you are calm. You are in the moment, you're enjoying, not worrying and stuff. So I think that's really useful to have as a grad student. And I think maybe maybe you can comment more about this, but in life in general, ha- like because life can get super hectic at times, looking for jobs and just being in a job as well, right? Regardless of what kind of job you're doing. Um, then to be able to take a step back every day for a little bit or like once a week and be like, okay, this is me time. This is where I'm going to focus on myself. I'm going to enjoy this moment to the fullest. And then I'm going to get back to it and it'll be okay. I totally agree with that approach. Um, I think it is um, part of whole whole human health to have that. Um, I don't necessarily agree that you should limit yourself to one activity. I think there's... I think if you have excellent time management, like you can do as many as you want, honestly. Um, But that's just, I think, an opinionated statement. Um, But I, grad school is hard. Grad school is really, really hard. Um, And so when you have that thing that you just thoroughly enjoy that you don't even have to think about what's hard in your life, I think that's that's wonderful. Um, Speaking of culture and speaking about sort of different circumstances or living circumstances. I mean, I reflect back to your bio and you lived in a lot of different places. Um, Since I've moved to the U.S., I was in uh, the Bay Area um, in Fremont and then San Jose was right there. So I ended up going to college there. They were really good for their uh, biochemistry. So I stayed at home um, and then I worked. I went to college every day and I commuted. So really my movement mostly has been in the last two years, uh, going from California all the way to the East Coast um, near Raleigh in Chapel Hill. That was a really nice transition. I, uh, 
to truth be told, I didn't apply to any of the grad schools in California. Um, not because any of them are bad. They're great schools and I know people there. It's more that I had lived in a place for 10 years and I wanted to explore something different. Um, just because different places have different cultures, different kinds of people, different attitudes. So it's always nice to, you know, look at something new every once in a while. And then in Chapel Hill, it was nice. It's very, very beautiful there. Lots of trees, kind of flat compared to California because obviously less flammable. Um, but it was, a, it was a nice thing. I, um, I was able to go to Raleigh like once every week or so for dance classes. I enjoyed it. Um, moving was a bit hard just because moving is right. I had started with a cohort there and then all of a sudden we were moving somewhere new. But I don't think I regret moving. I found very close friends here all by accident, of course. I went to a uh, an Indian event on campus um, and I just happened to find my people here. So I don't quite mind the moving, minus the actual putting everything in a container and shipping it across. Yeah, moving is one of the hardest things I think you can do in your life, um, let alone when you're a poor starving graduate student. Um, <laughs> but I, I think I appreciate you saying that, you know, you found your people, you found a, a culture that fits you. Um, and you are the first guest that actually has moved graduate programs. So how, how has that affected you? Um, truthfully, I had, I think, the first and only time I had searched up Purdue before the, I was told that we were moving was probably back in 2014 when I was considering what colleges to go to. Um, 2014, yeah, somewhere there. And I was really interested in the pharmacy program here. But then I was like, it's in the middle of nowhere. It's Indiana. What am I going to do there? So I didn't end up applying at all, actually, to Purdue. And then um, when I was told that we were moving, obviously everyone had pluses or minuses. But I think my lab culture and my PI is why I joined the lab. I think when you're joining a lab, there are three main things that you should like, or at least two of the three. You should like your PI, or at least be inspired by them. You should love the environment you're working in and the people you have. And then lastly, the research. I feel like the research takes the least priority between the three of them. Um, for me, I came in with very, very little electrochemistry knowledge. That's what our lab does. Um, but I came in, fell in love with how well my PI explains things, his drive to make to move science forward and make big splashes in the field. And then I met the people in lab and then I was just blown away. I, I was like, here, Jeffrey, please sign this paper so I can join your lab. So um, I think it was a no brainer for me to move with the lab. Um, I couldn't imagine not doing, I think more than not being able to imagine not doing ECAM anymore, it was more not being able to imagine being in any other lab except this one. Just because we did so many things together. Um, we had really, we have, really good bonding in terms of just the lab members. And I learned so much just in the year that I was at UNC. So 
while a tough move um in terms of you're going somewhere new now you have to figure out a new university and new rules and um transfer over your license and all of that um i think it it was a move well worth it uh, i've had more collaborations here i love the department here it it's really nice that's awesome um i think you uh hit the nail on the head when you were talking about um it's funny because we have a um i developed a self-paced course for uh students contemplating different sort of grad programs and i talk on those exact three things is that you have to talk about the research area are you willing to stay within your comfort zone are you willing to get into some other research area need to talk about lab culture um, and mm -hmm. how does um, the lab culture fit with how you want to be respected um, or, or the culture that you expect within a lab? And then and then I the, the ultimate. Now, I, personally, my top is PI. Like, who is the PI? How, how do you interact with them? Um, and is that how you want to be mentored? And mm -hmm. um, I think that that has to be a really, really synergistic um, meeting of, of the minds in order to be really successful and create a really successful long-term relationship. Yeah, I 100% agree. Your PI is going to be that one person who will push you nonstop. So there will be times where you'll be super annoyed with them. But at the end of the day, you should be able to look back and be like, okay, they pushed me so hard, but they believed in me. They believed in the science I was doing and they helped me push it forward. That's all that really matters. If you have, if you're thinking of PIs and you can't imagine someone being there at the end of your PhD, being the person who claps the loudest, you know, when you get done with that dissertation presentation, then maybe that person isn't really for you. Amen. Um, and I think there are some of us who have had kind of the antithesis to that experience and, um, I, that's why I love this podcast because it's like, okay, not everyone is Pollyanna and not everyone is going to have a wonderful experience. Some people have net negative experiences, but you live and you learn, right? And so you, yeah. you take those learnings um, and you, uh, the whole purpose of this podcast is really understand what has made other people very successful um, and the attributes there. Um, I do want to flip the script a little bit and focus now on your research because I'm really, really interested in it. Um, I didn't know prior to this podcast that you did single cell analysis. I wish I did because that was my um, my fellowship proposal was all based off of single cell mass spec analysis. So oh my gosh, I'm no way. super excited. <laughs> um, now that was a long time ago. Uh, 12, 12 years? Oh my gosh, um, I'm aging myself. Um, but I'm really excited. I want to know kind of like what is your what is your big picture? What is your big picture research? Um, and then we can you know take the conversation from there. Yeah. Um, well, I think I start off these conversations always by telling the important of, importance of single cell analysis. Though I'm sure I don't need to tell it to you since you you know propose single cells uh, analysis through mass spec. Um, but I think the biggest point of single cell analysis that a lot of people miss or single entity analysis in general is with cells, when you think about cancer, when you think about any, almost any disease that is like cell related, it all starts with a single cell. 
especially especially cancer right you have that one cell that goes rogue generally a stem cell and it starts uh, it increases in motility and goes across the different parts of your body seeds itself and that's how you have one the primary tumor and then later uh, successive uh, metastatic tumors so it's very important to see how that one cell really is behaving well because while we do know how cancer as a whole for example i don't know leukemia as a whole impacts the body uh, what we don't know is how that one cell is really being impacted by anything right because just single the amount of single cell techniques so far are very limited we have fluorescence but i'm sure you've seen it written on every single fluorescent reagent and it says the fluorescence tag might um, alter your system so be careful which one you use right so that alters um, our what's happening at our single cell level similar similarly in mass spec um, even just electroanalysis in particular you can imagine if you have a little electrode and you're trying to poke this fecal leader cell um, and you're passing current to that poor little cell, that thing is not going to survive, not for long, right? Depending on the amount of current you're passing. So what I do actually is to turn the tables on electrochemistry a bit and utilize some more of the bio reagents to make single cell analysis um, more achievable. So what we're trying to do is we have these nano and micro electrodes and on these microelectrodes, we are immobilizing aptamers. Aptamers are just long strands of DNA that we have functionalized with thiol on one side and one of our redox tags on the other side. Um, so what, what happens then is we're able to functionalize these aptamers on top of our electrodes and then cover the rest of the remaining area, which is about, so our aptamers take about 10% maybe of our surface and then um, the 90 percent is a hexane thiol layer to block off any of that excess um, energy that we might be putting into the cell so really you're passing very 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 small amounts of current into the cell um, so that prevents any adverse reactions or at least it limits the amount of adverse reactions that are happening inside the cell while you do the analysis you're also not oxidizing or reducing your key analyte here. So you're not using up, say, gluco, the glucose supply of the cell, right? So what we're doing instead is we're looking at aptamers that are able to bind and change in configuration uh, to something like an antibiotic, for example, like kanamycin or iranotecan, which is a cancer drug. Once it's absorbed into the cell and it comes near um, in terms of proximity to our electrode, our DNA binds around it, and our methylene blue, which is at the end of the DNA, is able to then, because it's closer to the electrode surface, um, charge transfer faster, and then it unhooks from the key analyte, and the analyte is able to float away. So at any point, we're not using up the analyte. We are just binding and unbinding so that we can know the true concentration of whatever is ha uh, the amount of analyte in the cell. Plus the technique that we use, square wave voltammetry, with these aptamers, we can get super fast speeds. We can do one analysis every second 
and still get reproducible data without killing our sensors themselves and um, getting rid of those DNA aptamers. So far, we've worked on miniaturizing the technology to the micro scale. We're still working on getting it to the nano scale so we can push it, push it inside a cell. Um, the key limitation there is just pulling electrodes. It, it's a long process trying to get them to work, but we're at it. We will get there. That is my dissertation. We will get there. <laughs> okay, so you said voltometry, but you gave you said a, a qualifier prior to that. Can you explain that instrumentation mm -hmm. and what, what it actually does? Yeah, so a lot of people might have heard of cyclic voltometry where you um, scan across a voltage, and as you scan, you're oxidizing going from the initial to the final voltage, and then you cycle back and reduce whatever you've oxidized. So square wave is pretty similar, except what it does is it does this in pulses. It'll oxidize and reduce. So it'll take a point at the uh, peak of oxidation and at the peak of reduction. And then it'll do that multiple times over a span of time that you tell it. So it, one of the main parameters for square wave voltometry is frequency. How many times are you going to run that CV or that oxidation rea reduction reaction within a certain amount of time that you're telling it. And what it does is generally, uh, because especially with aptamer-based sensors or any sensors where you have things immobilized on top of it, there's barely any current to recognize. So there's a lot of capacitive current um, just on top of the electrode or current that really isn't coming from any redox probe. So to eliminate that, it takes that reduction and oxidation peak and subtracts the two. So really all that capacitive current disappears because it's equal on the forward and the reverse scan. So it's a um, highly sensitive technique that people have used from anywhere from looking at um, neurons to looking at mitochondria and all kinds of things. Question around uh, what keeps you up at night? I think the biggest thing right now is as I miniaturize, I'm thinking about um, when I do put this into a cell, am I really causing a lot of harm to the cell? I know there have been papers who have done something similar without aptamer based sensors where they poke the electrode inside the cell and then they measure, um, they measure whatever reaction they're working on and then they take it out and then they image the cell over time and they're like, the membrane goes back. Nothing's happened with the cell, it's all good. And while I would love to believe that, uh, I think fundamentally, I do think about how our measurement has impacted the system that we're working in. And I think, but that goes with any kind of biological assay and such you're doing. To, an, to a degree, it's very hard to analyze a system without really perturbing it. Just you physically being there perturbs the system, right? You are growing cells in the incubator, how you give them um, media and such, what intervals you give them the media, all, everything impacts um, what you're going to see. But I think the easy response to that is doing multiple assays and just doing repetitive measurements to make sure we are seeing, what we're seeing is actually signal and not just um, the cell being their own happy self and like messing with us.
which also happens every once in a while because you can ask any person who's worked with a cell with cell lines and stuff they'll be like we work on the cell's timeline and they do not work on our timeline at all <laughs> true that um and it's so interesting because you're looking at and this was always like a, a mind hurdle for me at least is to think about you're doing single cell analysis, but you're actually quantitating over a population because if you think about it, the heterogeneity of cells are, are, is so vast um, that when you are actually looking at the single cell analysis, it's yes, it's at one, but then it's an N of 2 million and you're actually mm -hmm. looking at each one and then populationing that across and then looking at what are the comparators and, and the contrasting um, contributors to them. And then yeah. if you take that then to the next level too, um, I think you started with your research talking about single cell analysis and the impetus for it. Um, there's also the environment of it and how that cell interacts with other cells, either similarly to it or in conjunction with it, if it is part of like a, a, a system. Um, and so it's again, how you're perturbing that one cell, but then how you're perturbing it has then a cascade effect mm -hmm. potentially across the system. I am I am so happy you brought that up because I, I was just about to say that I left it out in the bio, but right now I'm working, um, as we work on miniaturization, uh, we've taken a little hiatus on looking at just the single cell and we've thought about exactly that. How does us passing current or us, you know, injecting these cells with different kinds of um, cancer reagents changes the population as a whole. So what we're doing is we're inserting our sensors into spheroids, actually. Uh, spheroids, um, for the people on the podcast who don't know, are basically two, 3D cultures of the same 2D culture model. So we'll take, um, for example, we'll take embryonic kidney cells, and then we'll grow them in ultra-low attachment plates. So instead of growing flat, on the um, on the dishes, they actually clump up on themselves and they resemble mini tumors, actually. So they look very circular and round, that's why they're called spheroids. Um, and then we're doing the analysis in that because it's very important to see how, like, especially in the tumor and such, if we are providing it with different um, chemo reagents, is anything even making it in? like? I'm sure you might have read papers with mass spec, with de nano desi and such, where they go and they slice up different parts of the tumor and they realize the inside of the tumor barely has any active cancer reagent. And that's what we're finding too. It's, it's actually mind boggling to think that we spend so much time and money in making these and it's not even piercing all the way through to the core of the tumor really. So I think knowing these kind of things and having more and more such reports really tell scientists that, okay, now maybe it's time to pivot in terms of chemotherapy reagents and figure out how we can get to the core of these tumors first, and then maybe, you know, kill them from inside out uh, for better, um, just for better life of the people who end up with these diseases. Well, and, and to take a step forward, um, I think that is precisely it in addition to if there are tumors which don't respond well to the treatment and actually respond negatively to treatment. And so um, if you don't actually 
define what the cell lines are specifically within the tumor, and then you don't have a precision medicine way of actually delivering therapeutics to that, it can actually be detrimental to a patient. Right. Exactly. exactly. And now now there are uh, people coming up with creative solutions to these. For example, I was um, for my prelim presentation, we have to choose a random topic and present on that. So one thing that I looked at was how we can el eliminate uh, cancer stem cells or like the key cells in cancer that do multiply and then they're able to go through our body and cause metastasis, how we can target just those cells because those cells are the are really the problem there. Radiation can get rid of all the other cells because they're not capable of division and of infiltration of the other uh, parts of the body. So if we can target those particular stem cells in the cancer tumor, and which uh, from what I was reading, we can, because they seem to have more CD44 markers than a lot of the other like cells in the tumor. So if we could do that, we could selectively eliminate just those and that combined with something like radiation and other chemotherapies might be a much more effective way to treat cancer than just simply looking at um, mastectomy or things like that. No, I love that. Um, I think that's uh, so, so crucial. Um, I did my qualifying exam on nail polish. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> Um, in short, uh, so the makeup industry actually in the United States is not as regulated as that of European Union. European Union has a list of a variety of different, um, um, there are phthalic acids, um, phthalates, um, that you cannot use in nail polish because they're actually carcinogenic, um, and they're, they're essentially, they're plasticizers. Uh, but it's not regulated in the U.S. as much. Um, and so the my qualifying exam was actually looking at uh, micellular chromatography as a methodology to quantify and qualify um, the phthalates in um, nail polish and in uh, makeup uh, uh, samples. That's fascinating. Yeah, it was cool. It was, you know, nanoparticles and micelles. And I was like, I have no idea on any of this, but it has to do with nail polish. And obviously I love nail polish. So um, I totally suck away from mass spec, away from single cell. And did something that I actually, it was a passion project of mine. Um, See that right there for, for all the listeners, that's called creativity. Please take note. You can still be creative and learn about the topics that you really enjoy, even you know, for all of these exams and things that you have to read for. Science doesn't have to be about this one thing that you get stuck on. It's science is a huge field with all types of and numbers of industries. It is a huge field, and um, my all male committee really listened to that, uh, specifically for their wives. It was hilarious. Um, <laughs> but I know we're running short on time. Um, I do want to ask you the the last question that I always ask our guests. Um, you know, if you were to reflect back 10, 15 years ago, um, what would be words of wisdom that you would have given yourself? 10, 15 years ago. That was such a different time. 10, oh. Okay, this this is high school. Okay, I would say, um, focus on what you like to do, and don't be embarrassed of what you like to do. I think I spent a lot of time in high school 
I had really good friends and such that those weren't the problem, but um, really thinking about how it was so much easier for some people who were not very like into science and stuff, who were, who like to do other things like sports or who were really good at science, you know, and wanted to be scientists. For me, I wanted to, wanted to go into science, but it was never like, I was never the top of the class in high school, but I would love to tell myself like, hang in there, you know, you don't need to be at the top of the class. As long as you pursue what you want, you will be able to make it where you want and maybe even to higher places than you can imagine. Just believe in yourself, I think, is the biggest thing I can tell myself. I like that. Um, I really like that. I think I talked to um, a lot of guests on this show and um, they say similar things to that. Um, you know, you're not good in math. So what? Like, it's fine. Um, or you're not, you know, I mean, just because you're not good in physics doesn't mean you're not good in science either. Um, exactly. Things like that, you know. Exactly. Um, I think that really comes from just like overall being in a culture, not like my familiar culture, but like being in an environment of people who are very competitive and it's all about the, the grades and getting those 100%. Um, but it's not all about that, you know? It's about being exposed to science and really liking what you do. Um, so knowing this, I've, I've also talked to a bunch of people in high school and did this change, uh, this uh, quest project um, with these women from American Association for University Women that uh, made it possible for younger and younger kids to be exposed to science through uh, girl STEM days and such. And I think if I had had that, that early on, where, you know, someone was coming and organizing science experiments for me, and they were telling me, you can do it, regardless of where you are, regardless of what grades you're getting. If you're interested, you can do this. And being able to see someone at a higher level who is like me, it would have been perfect. And thank you for this podcast as well. That is exactly what you're doing. And honestly, keep doing it. This is amazing. Thank you. No, I, I totally agree. Um, there is no shame to that. And there's also no shame to not staying in research. I didn't. And, but you know what, I can outthink and out problem solve pretty much any of my colleagues. Um, just because I've, I've had to do it. I've had to do it for years. Um, and so it's it's the how do you think like a scientist, not necessarily how do you think like a scientist and keep on researching like a scientist. Um, exactly. Research doesn't mean you're going to end up in a faculty position or, nope. you know, one particular space in the industry. It's all about the mind process. Most likely people who do, who are in their PhD, they're not going to use their exactly what they use in their PhD most of the time in what they're doing in their jobs. So it's all about gaining those skills and gaining that mentality of creativity and how to creatively approach problems. I think you have the, the thematic statement for this episode. So that's awesome. Well, thank you, um, Vanjika. Uh, I enjoyed this immensely. This was a great conversation. Um, so I appreciate you being a guest um, and, you know, using your voice for, for good and in taking us not only through your your journey, but also um, your research. It's been it's been really rewarding. So thank you for that. Um, 
And to my listeners, again, always ask yourself, where does your journey stem from? Thanks, everyone. Thank you.